and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this special episode on the future of public health on Thursday, August 26th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hi, everybody. And my KHN colleague, Lauren Weber. Hi, everyone. We're going to switch things up this week, as we usually do with our single topic episodes. First, we will hear from our expert on the subject, Brown University School of Public Health Dean Ashish Jha, who will give us the broad overview. Then we'll come back and the panel will discuss what could happen next. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ashish Jha. We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Ashish Jha, whose voice you almost certainly recognize from radio or TV as one of the nation's leading experts on the COVID-19 pandemic. But his day job is as dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University. And I couldn't think of anyone better to lead us through this background discussion. Ashish, thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So COVID has brought public health to the fore, but lots of people still don't know what it is. So I want to start there. What is public health and what role does it play in the nation's broader healthcare system? Yeah, it's a great question. So public health, the way, a simple way to think about it is, you know, if you walk into a doctor's office, the physician sort of sees you as their patient, rightly so, and, and thinks about what can they do to improve whatever medical problem you have. Public health practitioners often say our patient is the population, that we look at a community, a neighborhood, a society, and think about the health of that community and ask the question, how do we address the diseases affecting that community? How do we improve the health of that community? And if you think about the things that drive health in a community, yeah, it it certainly is healthcare. It's an important part of it, Um, but it's so much more, right? It's the environment, it's the housing, it's the quality and the quantity of food people have access to. So all these other things that go into kind of the what we often talk about is this, you know, the social determinants of health, that really ends up playing into the public health lens uh, in terms of thinking about the health of a people. And there are lots of different kinds of public health professionals, right? Absolutely. And public health is multidisciplinary at its heart, right? So you can imagine that if you're going to go into public health, you may be somebody who's an epidemiologist or a biostatistician who crunches numbers to think about populations. You may be a behavioral scientist who uh, thinks about how do you change people's behavior around food or or exercise. You may be um, a policy person who says, you know, as opposed to just tinkering on like, what does the doctor do with the patient? How do I change the way the healthcare system is structured so that we get better health outcomes? That's a classic public health approach. And then there are sort of the more nitty gritty community health workers. They're also part of public health, right? Oh, absolutely. Once you get outside of the academia, yeah, like public health practitioners range from, you know, your public health department directors that we've all gotten to know because they've been on the front end of the COVID fight. Uh, But community health workers, people who work and, you know, and, and there is a little bit of a debate in the public health field of like, how expansive do we want to be? I mean, you think about people who really focus on education. Well, education is a major determinant of health. So are those people doing public health? On one hand, I'd argue yes. On the other hand, 
sometimes you do have to create artificial boundaries. And some people who are, you know, it's sort of the, are you a lumper or a splitter? And if you're a lumper, you pull all those people in and say they're all doing public health. And if you're a splitter, you say, eh, education's a little outside. I don't know. I'm more of a lumper, so I'm fine. So what's the public's biggest misunderstanding about public health? Well, there's a bunch. I mean, I think one of the things people have struggled with on public health is there's this idea, I mean, public, the word public, often people think about it as government, right? Like, and so then they think of public health is in the realm of the government. And of course, the government has a very large role to play in public health, but so does the private sector. And the private sector plays a very big role from the tools that it creates for enabling public health to most people interact with private healthcare delivery system. So there's a lot, there's a large role for the private sector in public health. And that feels funny to people. And um, most people, I think, don't think much about public health. And certainly before a pandemic, they didn't. But, you know, we often talk about this in the sense of, you know, if you open up your tap and you get water that's clean and not going to make you sick, that's public health. And I'm glad you didn't think about it. I'm glad you can assume that the water that comes out of your tap is going to be safe and healthy for you to drink. So a lot of the work that happens in public health happens in the background in ways that people don't notice. And I see that as a good thing. Of course, it has some problems like then we can take it for granted and then we underfund it until there's a crisis. And then we think, oh, my God, why have we been underfunding public health? I want to go back to your sort of lumper or splitter. I, you know, a lot of people think of who actually have a vague understanding of public health, think about it in its most traditional sense, providing vaccines and other preventive health measures, ensuring proper sanitation, and as you said, untainted food and water. More recently, public health has come to encompass things like health equity and climate change and gun violence. Is public health trying to take on too many issues, do you think? No, I think what is happening is public health is developing a lens in and not developing, but really understanding that these things. So let's say climate change, for instance, climate change is going to have a profound effect on people's health. Uh, it's probably the biggest health risk over the next decade, two decades. That's really hard if you think about this as a clinician. That doesn't quite make sense. But as a public health practitioner, that makes a ton of sense. Gun violence, obviously, a huge problem in our country. And we can see it as one individual shooting at a time. Or we can take a public health lens and say, oh, yeah, there are probably some structural things that we can do. So the key here is as we make progress, public health is going to shift its focus. As we make progress on sanitation, thankfully, sanitation is reasonably good in America. It makes sense to then tackle the things that are causing major health problems. And they do move away from sanitation and more into uh, gun violence, climate change and issues of health equity, which, of course, have been with us since the you know, beginning of our country. Yes, I know. I keep hearing that your zip code is as important as your sort of personal medical numbers, yeah. your blood pressure. Absolutely. And this is, you know, there's there's work that goes back to Michael Marmot, who did some really nice work in, in London. There's a very famous map of how the tube stop and the community that lives around that tube stop. And he basically looked at life expectancy. And you can go kind of three stops down on the metro and you get a 15-year difference in life expectancy. Uh, the kinds of differences we see between you know, high-income and low-income countries all within the city of London. People have done that for Boston. You can do that for every city in America. It does turn out that where you're born ends up having this very profound effect on your life expectancy, on your well-being. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because if where you're born affects the environment of the and the quality of the air you breathe, uh, the quality of the food you get access to, the education that you will have access to, the health care you will have access to. As a country that believes deeply in meritocracy and giving people an equal chance, uh, that's deeply wrong. 
Like we don't want a child's zip code to determine his or her uh, long-term well-being and outcomes. So that's something that we really need to address. And that's a classic public health problem. How worried are you about the politicization of public health? I am old enough to remember that right after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks that uh, beefing up the nation's public health infrastructure was completely bipartisan. And we saw a little bit of that last year, at least in Congress, with with money for the pandemic. But we've seen sort of since then this enormous split, even in communities uh, and, you know, frontal attacks on public health workers. Yeah, it is worrisome. And I always begin by asking the question, what else can we in the public health community be doing better and differently? First, I think public health has a problem, which is how it communicates and how it communicates to the broader American people. And I will tell you that if I want to begin at home and say, where are we falling down on the job in the public health community? I will say part of it is we do not have enough conservative voices within public health. Uh, you know, survey a few years ago at the Harvard School of Public Health where I was of donations, I think in the 2012 election, 100% of all staff faculty donations went to Democrats. This is a problem. You actually do not want institutions where nobody who's right of center ever steps foot. Um, because what happens is you lose pe- a perspective on people's lives and their values and what they, what matters to them. And that, I think, has really hurt the public health community. Uh, and so that's something we need to fix ourselves. Now, beyond that, I don't think that's the biggest and only problem. I think there has been a politicization for political goals and political gain. Um, I think it started under the Trump administration, uh, but it has continued. And it's a huge problem. Now, I think when I talk to, I I speak to Republican members of Congress, I speak to uh, Republican governors, they get it. Like they can't actually go around undermining their own public health agencies. They know that the people who will be harmed will be their citizens. So I'm hopeful that the investments that are necessary in public health will happen broadly across the country. But the public discussion around public health has been far too polarizing, and I think it's a huge problem. How worried are you at sort of the individual practitioner level? I mean, we've seen people being threatened, you know, their children being threatened, being fired for telling the truth, being publicly pilloried. Are you worried that students won't want to go into public health anymore? I mean, it's never fun, but now it's not fun and dangerous. Right. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question, right? Because public health schools have seen about a 25% increase in applications this year. The Brown School of Public Health saw a 110% increase in applications. So people are voting with their feet and they do want to go into public health. The demonization of these public health officials has been horrible and completely unacceptable. I think it has happened in the part of a broader context of what's happening with misinformation and disinformation in our society, right? Where there are these very well-organized disinformation campaigns and people genuinely believe that the virus is a hoax or that these vaccines are killing hundreds of thousands of people. And if you genuinely believe those things, then it makes sense that the anger you feel at public health officials. But unfortunately, I don't think that anger begins or ends with public health. We're seeing this across the political conversation. So we've got to address the root cause. Um, We've also got to protect our public health workers uh, who uh, are not our most powerful and well-paid members of society. 
Uh, they're really doing God's work, and and we've got to do a better job as a society. I, I spend a lot of time talking to college students and grad students, and talk to a lot of public health students. And I, in sort of the early two thousands, I would go around the room, and everybody wanted to go into global health. They wanted to do public health, but they wanted to do it in other countries. Um, do you think the pandemic is going to change that? Not for pandemic reasons, but do you think it's going to be more sort of sexy to try to work in the United States and our own problems? Absolutely. And I don't know if, if it's sexy or just realizing that, my God, we have a lot of work to do in this country. Our public health response has been, you know, pretty abysmal and abysmal in ways that I'm not sure that many of us could so easily predict. You know, what's interesting, uh, Julie, is that if you go back to two years ago and you looked at, for instance, the Global Pandemic Monitoring Board or the Global Health Security Index created by Hopkins, even reports that I was involved in, we often describe America as the country best prepared to handle a pandemic. Boy, that turned out to be wrong. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's embarrassing how wrong that was. But it's worth asking the question, why was that so wrong? And it was wrong because we misunderstood what really drives public health. Um, it isn't just laboratory capacity, which, is, of course, is important and, and those things. It is about social cohesion. It is about communication. It is about behavior change and how you get people to understand the moment we are in. We did a terrible job of that. And I think it opens up a huge opportunity, not just for traditional public health students, but a new group of public health students and public health practitioners who are going to be much more comfortable engaging in those issues. Which brings us, of course, to the question of funding. Um, funding for public health has been on a roller coaster. There's a big infusion of funds when public health is top of mind. And then it dwindles. We saw that with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the public health funding in there has been rated repeatedly for other things that seemed more pressing at the time. How important is a steady stream of funding to keep our sort of public health infrastructure viable? Yeah. A few years ago, after the Ebola outbreak uh, in West Africa, a group of us were talking about uh, how we think about public health funding and, and the phrase, and I don't remember who said it first, but I think it captures it perfectly, uh, that we've all used since then is from panic to neglect, right? Like you panic and you throw billions of dollars and then you're like, oh, it's fine. Well, public health, what? Like, it's all good until the next crisis. And we threw all that money at Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what did you do with all exactly. that money? And so steady stream of funding is incredibly important. There's one more important nuanced issue that you actually raise that I think is worth understanding. Most Americans, and I don't blame them for this, uh, don't differentiate between healthcare and public health. They just think about health. And so then when people like me say we're not spending enough money on public health, they're like, buddy. Four trillion dollars. Like, how much more of the economy do you want? And part of it is the mix between healthcare and public health. And we have got to get better at that. And we definitely have to have a larger chunk of the $4 trillion pie. I don't think we can expect the uh, U.S. taxpayer and our, and our country to just continue to expand that spending. I think some of it has to come from efficiencies in the healthcare system. And we've got to find ways of spending less on healthcare and having more money available for public health. And it does, and you're right, what happens is you, you build these public health trust funds and then they get raided because people need MRIs and people need CT scans. And then you're like, oh yeah, and that money's just sitting there. So we have to also have a different way of spending that money during quote unquote peacetime so that we have a public health workforce that's effective and ready to go when the next crisis hits. If you could change one thing um, what, right now, what would it be? I would have a lot more people outside of public health engaged with public health. I think one of the things that struck me in this pandemic was 
that a lot of the mistakes that happen is that the public health community didn't engage enough with sociologists and economists and other experts. And when you have major crises, you really need people from a broad swath of society involved in the decision making. So that's something, again, I, as I said, I always begin with what can we do differently and what can we do better? Um, because it's important to start there as opposed to blaming others. Obviously, from the outside, what I would argue is absolutely essential is a commitment from both state and federal government uh, for long term funding and support and steady funding and support. Uh, for public health. Anything uh, I, I didn't ask that uh, you feel like people need to understand about public health? You know, it's it, as I said in the beginning, it is it sits there in the backdrop. Um, it shows up actually all the time in our lives. And I think the other thing that we all need to do a better job of, and certainly those of us in the public health community do a better job, is helping people connect the dots between the broad range of things that are happening in our society and the way that they are affecting our health. That is the job of public health. And I think for the next generation of public health leaders, it's going to be about connecting climate change to public health, connecting racism to public health, getting people to understand that these things that we care about, we don't care about them in isolation. We care about them because they really end up harming the health of people. That's great. Ashish Jha, thank you so much for doing this. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Okay, we are back with much to chew over. Lauren, you've spent a lot of the past year on a project looking at the impact of the COVID pandemic on public health. And to paraphrase the meme of the week, public health workers are not doing all right, are they? They are not doing all right, Julie. I mean, here's the deal. Look, let's take a few steps back. We have lost 38,000 public health workers since the Great Recession. You know, state uh, state public health budgets have been cut by about 16% from around 2008 to 2019, local public health budgets have been cut by 18%. Your public health worker has been operating on low pay and facts, and that was all before the pandemic began. And so when the pandemic hit, they were very ill-equipped to really step into that breach. Joanne, you probably remember the way I did, how much money was kind of thrown at public health after 9-11 and the anthrax attack. Yeah, and it was interesting because the country has never really wanted to invest in public health. Public health's burden or its curse is that when it works, you don't see it. When it works, it prevents something from happening or it prevents a small problem from becoming a big problem. And because its successes are basically invisible, lawmakers look at it and said, we don't need that. Why spend any money on it? So after 9-11 and anthrax, a lot of money did go into public health, but it was actually under sort of the rubric of bioterror defense, just biodefense. And Everything they did, and it was a bipartisan effort between Senator Kennedy and Senator Frist, were the sort of go-to people on that. A ton of money got sent to public health um, because anything you do for bioterror, for monitoring new weird things, is the same thing you do for new weird non-attack, I mean, nature attacking us, which is what a virus is. Which has turned out to be a lot more common in recent years. Right. And so there's a lot more of that than people realize. They just don't become as bad as this one did. So from like 2002 or so until 2008, 2009, there was a lot of money. And then it was, you know, the Great Recession, as Julie just noted, belt tightening. You know, they cut back and they never rebuilt. And in fact, in the big stimulus bill under Obama, 
you remember that there was pandemic flu money in there? And I think it was Susan Collins who insisted on being cut. I may be remembering that wrong. I'm pretty sure it was her. So everything we had done right for a few years, we undid and left ourselves really vulnerable. Well, there's a huge pot of public health money in the Affordable Care Act. And pretty much every year for the three or four years following, Congress went and raided that. It's like, well, what do we need all this money for? We need it for emergency X or emergency Y that had nothing to do with public health. And then surprise, a pandemic comes along and we look around. It's like, where, what happened to all of the money that we gave you? And it's crazy because even now, I mean, they allocated all this money for public health preparedness. And even now they're even talking about drawing back some of this money. It's being talked about that some of the $30 billion or so that was allocated is going to get clawed back very shortly from now. It's considered a public health slush fund of sorts. And we all sit around and wonder why the pandemic has gone so poorly. And it's not just like spending more money on what we used to do. It's also rethinking public health. And Lauren and I have both written about this, um, as have pretty much all the people who appear on this podcast. It's, it's, you know, how do you rethink public health for the 21st century? How do you think public health to deal with equity? How do you link public health? How do you de-silo it? So it's integrated into our healthcare system and integrated with primary care. How do you deal with climate change, which she's just mentioned as well? How do you deal with equity and, and public health? So it's not just, you know, it, public health is sort of this like little public health department over here and then the rest of the humongous health department over there, like one we spend trillions on and one we're spending pennies on. That is a slight exaggeration, but only slight. And we just need to think of public health as part of healthcare or healthcare as part of public health. And you know, take this opportunity not just to put money into it, but to modernize and change our thought process. Once upon a time, Republicans were all about public health and research, and it was the Republicans, it was Newt Gingrich who led the effort to double funding from the National Institutes of Health. And yet I feel like in the last decade in particular, we've seen, you know, this bashing of government and this bashing of science. And I feel like one of the reasons that you know, people have gone after public health in this pandemic is because they've they've met at that sort of nexus of we don't trust you because you're science and because you're government. Is there some way to restore the public faith in the people who's who mostly keep us pretty safe every day? I mean, as Joanne said, it's the stuff that you don't see that we take for granted. Um, you know, other infectious diseases, um, lead poisoning, clean water, clean air, cleanish water and clean air, and you know, non-tainted food. How do we, how do we how do we get that back? You know, I'll just say she's kind of touched on this. I mean, if you look at the public health profession, it's it's typically, you know, called a very liberal profession. So I do think there is some argument to adding more conservative voices back into public health and getting them to be better public health advocates. But at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at President Donald Trump, I mean, back when the Ebola crisis happened long before he was president, he came after public health and science in that front. He very aggressively tweeted about not bringing folks back with Ebola to be treated on our shores and so on. And, you know, you saw some of that anti-science rhetoric continued throughout his presidency. I mean, when the man recovered from COVID, he ripped off his mask on the balcony. I mean, so I think, you know, we have a long way to go before you have a united country on public health because it has been so intermingled with a political poison to a sense. And that has trickled down to public health practitioners. I mean, something we've reported with our KHN AP underfunded and under threat project is that over 250 local and state public health officials 
have fired, resigned, or retired during the pandemic. That is the largest loss of public health leadership our country has ever seen. And it leaves a gap of about one in six Americans have lost their local public health leader during the pandemic. And as you said, these are the folks keeping your water clean. They're protecting you from TB. They're protecting you from meningitis. And we're losing them in the droves. Joanne, is there some way to sort of regain this trust? Well, I mean, I think that the politicization that we saw prior to the pandemic, I mean, remember Sharpie Gate and, you know, the attack on the National Weather Service. And I think the attack on climate science has really undermined the credibility of health and science in, in general. But it's it predated the Trump administration. It was magnified and exacerbated under the Trump administration. But this erosion of faith in science and it's part of a larger erosion in faith of expertise. And it's not even just in the United States. You know, it's it's actually global. You know, it sort of comes in waves throughout our history, right? There have been these sort of anti-expert, anti-elite, anti-egghead, anti-knowledge at times. So, so it has come in waves. It's never coincided with an epidemic pandemic of this proportion. So I, I think it comes to larger lack of trust in institutions. And I don't have the answers for that. I think it's, you know, a sort of society-wide problem that part of our tribalism and part of our political divisions that are impeding our recovery from the pandemic as well. You know, the fact that someone like Tony Fauci gets death threats and has become this political symbol when for many years he was really a trusted voice. I mean, we've been hearing he has a unique ability to communicate and we've been hearing him you know, from the AIDS crisis on. And when Ronald, when there were Republicans who were president, yes. I mean, that he was he yes. was George H.W. Bush's hero in a yes. presidential debate. Yes. For part of the country, he's now this manifestation of evil. And, you know, he had been a bipartisan hero and he's been, you know, the man is 80 years old or just about. He's been a voice of clarity for decades. And I think sort of the story of what's happened to Tony Fauci is sort of the story of what's happened to public health or health writ large. And I'll just add into that. I mean, Tony Fauci has gotten a lot of death threats. Tony Fauci also has a secret service detail. And a lot of these local and state public health officials do not. And they are getting death threats by mail, by phone, in person, you know, aggressive, so on. And, you know, the trickle down from the federal attitude of national politics to the state and local level, you've seen armed protesters show up at public health officials' homes. And it, it really has changed the dynamics of public health during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to go protest the president or to even go protest on Capitol Hill. But, you know, there was that terrifying video of the public health director in Idaho who, you know, there were people outside her house and her kids were home alone. It's not things that I remember having seen before in 35 years of covering public health. I mean, which which sort of, I guess, raises the question, is public health trying to do too much? Should public health maybe not, you know, wade into gun violence and climate change? On the other hand, those are things that certainly threaten the health of, of our citizens. I mean, where's, where is sort of the, the balance here going forward? Well, I mean, I think there are questions about health care in general, like what is there's been a lot of talk about equity. There's been a lot of talk about social determinants of health. I mean, where is it the health care systems or the health systems or the public health system to deal with issues like food security and housing, um, you know, transportation, all these issues that affect our health and affect our access to health care. And, and yet, obviously, you know, the health care system or the public health department isn't going to rent every person and an apartment or buy everybody's groceries. So there's this 
you know, where do we de-silo and create partnerships? What is the healthcare system? What is the public healthcare system? What is other social services? But right now it's so fragmented that no one's doing it or no one's doing it adequately. So it's not that, you know, Ashish's phrase was the lumpers, you know, put everything in public health. But some of that has to be in the public health basket and some of it has to be public health extending a hand and coordinating with other sectors to achieve social programming that makes us healthier and might ultimately lower the cost of healthcare or at least contain the growth if we're not doing so many damaging things. Yeah, and just to add on to that, the way that many public health officials have explained their job to me during the pandemic is that they're the people that keep you from getting to the ventilator. They want you to not even make it to the hospital. They want to keep you from getting COVID altogether. And that's a huge cost saved. For every, I believe it was the United Airlines CEO who said that for every COVID patient, they're seeing about $50,000 worth of cost. So if you're a public health person and you are keeping that person from the ventilator, that's a heck of a lot of savings. But that becomes very difficult in the pandemic to see where those lines get blurred. Because if you're trying to keep someone who's homeless from the pandemic or someone who works a low wage job, who continues to have to go into the office and mass mandates may or may not be allowed in your town, city or state. You know, these are the quandaries that these public health workers are now facing and add to that kind of question about blurred lines. Well, if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, I would say go out and hug a public health worker. But since we are, I'll say go out and thank a public health worker. <laughs> uh, ladies, you have given us plenty to think about. Um, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Joanne? I'm at Joanne Cannon. Lauren? I'm at Lauren Weber HP. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.